There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10th and Grinch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I'm so excited about tonight's show. First of all, we got Professor Mike Geary, who I also will add was an NYPD sergeant, really smart guy. And I don't know how I did this, this coup, but I got superstar FBI agent Bobby Chacon, and he's a Long Island boy, and he also has two family members who are NYPD sergeants. How could I do any better than that? Bobby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure about the superstar thing, but uh, thank thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, you know, Bobby, as I told you off the air, I was like, you know, I've watched, I call them talking heads. And, you know, when I go on a TV channel, I'm a talking head too. So it's not just a derogatory comment, but you were one of the best talking heads during this whole thing. I, I really liked the way you presented yourself when you talked about behavioral analysis you didn't speak in absolutes. You left an out that this could mean this or this could mean that. I can't, you know, anything with investigation, there's no could have, would have, should have. There's always room for movement. There's no positivity. This means this. Sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, look, you can't talk in those terms. You know, th those of us who have done it, actually done the work, you realize how you can trip yourself up when you start talking in absolute terms because invariably investigations have twists and turns that you don't see coming. You know, you just got to be in it you got to be ready to react and and deal with the evidence as it comes to you. It, you know, you can't you can't make assumptions, you can't make conclusions, you know, or you lose a case. You know, Bobby, uh with this case, I think we were all guilty of sort of pointing the finger at the little Moscow Police Department cuz let's face it, they have no experience. They they haven't had a homicide in 7 years and you know and I know and and Professor Mike knows that to really properly investigate a murder, you need experience. You can't just be smart. You know, people say, oh, Chief Fry is smart. Yes, yeah, so is everybody else. But if you don't have experience doing this, I don't care how smart you are. And the experience obviously came in from the FBI and the, the Idaho State Police. And look at the results. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, that was my first good sign when and it was quite early on in the investigation that they were saying they brought in the Idaho State Police, they brought in the FBI, and I knew right then that Moscow was going to have success in this case because you know when you when you put your when you put your ego aside, you really can you can make a lot of headway. And it's really when you see cases get stuck, it's usually because somebody has an ego and and it got in the way. And um, and when I saw early on them inviting that help in, I said you can't go wrong when you when. When you're open to that kind of stuff, you, you just can't go wrong. Absolutely. Professor Mike, I don't want you sitting on the top there and just having me and Bobby have a conversation no. here. No, I, I We, we yeah. got that affidavit. I want to ask you a specific question, Mike. We got that affidavit. There was information in there that for everyone should oh, be yeah. a block, should be a blockbuster. Just a blockbuster. Things that we didn't know, but yet we also see that certain things leaked out, little parts of it leaked out, you know. Sure. But why don't you speak to the uh, affidavit, Mike? Uh, the, the affidavit is only intended to establish probable cause uh, to a judge in, in Idaho. And then therefore, that was the basis of uh, the affidavit was the basis, the foundation of the judges issuing the arrest warrant for Kohlberg. Uh, so it's if somebody's looking to see that this is all the evidence that there is in the case or that will be presented at trial, no. This is just the, the tip of the iceberg of all the evidence so far gathered. It's very, it's crucial and it serves a crucial purpose, but it isn't everything. And uh, it appears when you read through it that early on that they had noticed that there was blood on the uh, the, the knife sheath and they, they they didn't have a hit on it yet, obviously, but uh, they you know, had Mike, Mike I, I have to correct you. Oh, sorry. They didn't say there was blood, they said there was DNA. Oh, I apologize. And it was on the button that right. opens the knife. So yeah. we can't assume it was blood. We can't, we, we know it was DNA, but we can't assume it was blood. Yeah. And they had that. And that was fantastic. a fantastic way to start uh, because you've got that was once you've got that match, uh, you can make a match. Then the case is 
uh, you've got you got a tremendous amount there. It's hard for a defense attorney to uh, try to uh, challenge that. But early on, they had that. They also, within about 12 days of the uh, actual crime, the uh, the Hyundai information came in that there was white Hyundai, yeah, Hyundai uh, in the area. They saw that on more than uh, a number of doorbell cameras and traffic cameras that anybody thought actually existed. They saw um, the pattern of uh, scoping out the location for about about half an hour before he actually committed the crime that day, that morning. Um, so they had that. They had him speeding out of the air area about 4.20, I believe. Uh, they had the pinging of, and the cell, there was no pinging on his cell phone during that time, but there was pinging before when he was in Washington and pinging after when he got back to Washington. And uh, the pinging on his cell phone perfectly matches up with the uh, traffic cameras, you know, uh, on Washington State University campus and the roads that he took to get to and from Moscow. Um, so they, it was a tremendous amount of information that the public could see that led to the, they, the public has the idea that these were the, this is what was going on daily, day after day after day, the news was slowly closing. And then the final page of the affidavit, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I believe he's a corporal on the, the investigator for the, for the Moscow police uh, discusses uh, the DNA uh, that they got from the trash outside of Kohlberg's parents' house in Pennsylvania. You know, you know Mike, I don't want you to get ahead with that because I yeah. want to play a little video of that yeah. with CNN later on. But one of the things, uh, Bobby and, and Mike, I don't think the media really knows what probable cause means because they the way they say it, and it just simply the definition is, uh, now I'm forgetting the definition, is um, facts and circumstances that would allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person arrested committed the crime. That's probable cause. They make it into something so much bigger, maybe because of this affidavit. And I know Mike, uh, uh, Mike, you and Bobby both have a law degree. So who the hell am I to talk about this? Bobby, you want to uh, enlighten us a little more on that? Yeah, I mean, in late in late terms, I mean, it's really more likely than not, right? That's what we think of 51% or we say more likely than not that this person committed the crime. Um, and, and, you know, and so I think that, you know, there's a balance that prosecutors try to strike. You know, we put in just enough to get it. We don't want to put our whole case in there. Um, that'll come later during discovery and all that. But I, I think that, you know, they want to put enough in there to make to make the judge feel like they have a strong enough case, um, especially in a murder case when you're arresting somebody for murder. Um, but you certainly don't put everything in there. And they, there's a there's a decision that happens between the investigators and the prosecutors on, OK, what we want to put in and how much do we want to put in. Ultimately, obviously, it's the prosecutor's decision. Um, but 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 they're a team right now and they're working as a team, the prosecutors and the and the agents and detectives, you know, and the investigators are working very much as a team. And certainly now that charges have been filed, they will be attached. There'll be a war room at the prosecutor's office and they'll move forward working very much as a team. Well, you know, Bobby, one of the things and I'm going to we'll talk about this later on is I would have been so tempted when I saw and I'll show that video later on. The video from CNN with John Miller, where he he was cleaning his car at four o'clock in the morning and dumping his garbage. I would have been so tempted to jump him right then. Like, did they not have probable cause then? Because he just destroyed very valuable evidence in that car. I mean, I'm sure they recovered the garbage in his neighbor's garbage pail. But as far as destroying the evidence in that car, that might not ever be able to be recovered because he probably cleaned it with bleach or ammonia or alcohol or something like that. Except that we have, you know, the, the uh, DNA, the, the accumulation of DNA evidence has really gone a lot further in the, last, in the last few years with things like the MVAC that we have now that we can extract DNA. We could, these guys who think they can clean that car, I've seen guys clean cars thinking they got everything out and stuff is still there. I mean, in, in the warehouse where I used to work in the CSI FBI office, I mean, they have a lift. They have lifts because they process so many cars. They go over those cars with a fine-tooth comb. And, you know, he, he this guy may think he was a criminal mastermind. Those things he's doing are what we call forensic countermeasures. Um, they're not usually very good. And even though he cleaned, I'm sure that they had enough evidence. They, they were doing the trash covers. They were collecting the trash, even though he was trying to hide it. Um, they were ahead of him. And I don't think they would have allowed him to, to destroy that evidence, you know, especially if under observation. 
if they already didn't know they had enough and whatever was in that car, once they got the car, they're going to process that car. They're going to be able to get valuable evidence from that car, even, even though he attempted to clean it. Absolutely. I'm going to play a little bit of you on, I have you here, so I'm not going to play so much. I'm going to show you on Cuomo and uh, we'll play a little bit of this. Uh, like this. My speculation is the last thing they want to do is swing and miss. It's not like they got this guy at the airport on his way out of the country. Um, take us inside the room in terms of making a decision about making to arrest, uh, making an arrest in a high profile situation like this. I know you mm -hmm. always want to be certain that you can make probable cause, but what's the heightened sensitivity here? How real is it? Well, you have prosecutors, Chris, that are going to possibly seek a death penalty in this case. Death penalty cases have much more reviews, much more appeals, um, and, and they're just much closely more watched. Um, and so you had the agents or the detectives working together, and they're really waiting to see when the prosecutors are comfortable going forward, because that's that's who's going to stand up in court, right? And so they had to be they had to be very certain, not only that they had enough probable cause, they have enough to prove at trial and get the conviction or else they wouldn't go forward. Remember with double, double jeopardy, we get one shot at this. So I think that they have, you know, we're talking about this piece of evidence or that piece of it. I think they have multiple pieces of evidence. I think they do have his DNA at the scene that matches the DNA they got in. I think they may have a witness that may have seen him leave that house that night. I think that they've got, um, you know, they've got the, the car and somebody that may have been in that car. I think there's multiple things that they have that built up to this case. We'll find out a little bit of that when the probable cause affidavit's released. We won't find all of it out because the prosecutors like to hold back. They just need to meet that probable cause burden in that affidavit. They don't want to give their whole case away yet. So we'll find some of these answers out. Unfortunately, we won't find all of them out next week. One more. Let me get rid yeah. of him. Some people We're back. Were, uh, some people <laughs> were a little surprised that, I, that even last Friday, I kind of knew that they had somebody as an eyewitness leaving that house, a lot of people were shocked when they read that in the affidavit. And I was saying, well, I was saying that last Friday night that that they probably had somebody that saw him coming or going. Well, that that's pretty amazing because we now know that uh, the 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 female roommate only ID'd as DM. Uh, she saw a male wearing a mask uh, leaving the location and. We'll get into that a little bit more later on because there were, we could question her actions, which I'm sure a lot of people are going to, including the um, the defense attorneys. Mike, yeah, I uh, reading over the affidavit. You know, you thank thank God uh, that he didn't stop to kill her. Maybe it was uh, he. My guess is he was so jacked up on an adrenaline high, and we've been there. You're out on the field, and something goes down. Your adrenaline shoots to the roof. He might have been so jacked up on adrenaline, and you get that tunnel vision. And I would, I used to experience like, uh, like a almost like a a sound machine kind of effect in my ears, where you really couldn't hear what was going on. It was just total focus. And I think he was um, so jacked up. She probably cracked the door open a little bit and saw his face just enough because it was, you know, it was four twenty in the morning, and. Uh, Thank goodness, because if it wasn't for her, this would have been gone on a lot longer. Um, they probably still ultimately would have gotten him, but thank goodness that uh, she survived it. Uh, I hope to God that people don't rake her over the coals on the internet for not calling the police. Nobody knows what they would have done. Um, and I just want to say in her defense, uh, if you read the affidavit, she hears people twice mentioned, is there someone in the house? But nowhere is there written that she heard a scream like a call for help other than some crying towards the very end um uh, so it's uh, it's going to be interesting to have her on the stand she's going to be i think probably the most persuasive um witness for the prosecution you know i want to play this from uh, cnn and this is what i was talking about before in garbage bags into neighbors' bins. John Miller, CNN law enforcement analyst, uh, is with us. Thanks very much. The affidavit said so much because we didn't know much in terms of how they got to this suspect and why. You know, the affidavit is the anatomy of a modern criminal investigation. I mean, how many times over the last seven weeks did we hear people say the case isn't going anywhere, the police aren't telling us anything?
thing? You know, why isn't it solved already? But the affidavit tells us that really from the day of the murder, they start with the video canvas. Then they develop pictures of a white Honda Elantra. Okay, it's a car, not a person. They don't have a plate. But then they ask other police departments, you know, to look for that car. A college police officer finds one. They then look at the owner of that car. On December 23rd, they get the cell phone record showing the owner of that car has been what appears to be from the record staked out in the area of that murder house a dozen times since August. So they start to zero in on Brian Kohlberger. But when you get into the affidavit, the chilling details, um, a downstairs surviving witness hears crying upstairs and a voice saying, it's okay, I'm here to help you. The dog barking, more crying, um, and then sees a figure clad in black walk out the door through the sliding glass uh, wearing a black mask. It's frightening even to read. It turns out, as we were, people were saying, um, and I guess everyone sort of thought, what's going on? Doesn't anyone know anything? Isn't there any evidence? turns out there was a whole lot that they well, were working on that we just weren't aware of. A whole lot. But just like, and I've been in cases like this before, where you've got great leads and they fizzle, and then you have other leads working, and then one of them starts to pan out. It was a lot of evidence, but it came in bits at a time. And then literally two days before Christmas really accelerates. But some of the, some of the interesting things that haven't come out in the affidavit, uh, they're staked out in Pennsylvania at Brian Kohlberg's house, at, a, at his family's house in a very rural area. And the surveillance team that's watching from a pretty great distance uh, sees him come out and clean the car from top to bottom, inside and out, using surgical gloves to handle items um, as if, you know, the car was about to be sold almost. Um, they see him um, taking out the trash at four o'clock in the morning, Brian Kohlberg himself, um, and then putting it in the neighbor's bin next door. And why are, why are there, why is he under surveillance? One, they're waiting to get probable cause to arrest him so he doesn't get away, disappear, or they don't have to find him. But more importantly, they're there to see if they can recover that abandonment sample, something they threw away that would have his DNA on it. And that's why they went to the trash, collected it, and made that match that allowed the judge to okay that. The most important thing, though, is motive. So we still don't have motive. And the clue to that is not only, Don, is it not in the affidavit, but, you know, Poppy, they came out the day they announced the arrest. Now, who knows something about this guy who can share it with us? Because they're still trying to get into that. One other thing that nobody's talked about, Pennsylvania authorities are looking at this case that happened on the other side of the country, but saying this guy lived here. And based on the offender characteristics of a quadruple murder done with sufficiency, in, they don't believe that that is his first encounter with violence. Most killers don't start with something like that right. so they're going bobby comments <laughs> about is this his first time yeah i mean i look that's a common misconception i think that that you know look this very well could be his first time with violence i mean we know he was studying criminal justice he was getting you know obsessed or whatever look he's a sociopath he probably had those characteristics early in his life but you know i i do ordinarily say you don't, you know, you don't start this with this type of crime as your first one. But in this particular case, I think there's differences in this case that could mean um, it, it, it is his first brush because he's not a very good criminal. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, he was studying to be a Ph.D. And I, I made this comment on, on a national news show the other day that got a lot of repeats in that I said, if, if he went to school to be a master criminal, he needs to get his tuition money back because he... <laughs> He made so many mistakes to be in custody, to be in bracelets six weeks, barely after a quadruple homicide complex crime scene. You've done a lot of things wrong. And uh, and so the, the, the fact that the thought that this guy's some criminal mastermind with, a, a, a you know, going for his Ph.D. I mean, look, those are academics, you know, academics. We've all known academics in our careers. They're good at book work. They're good in the classroom setting and stuff. But a lot of it doesn't translate to the real world. And so, you know, this is a case where people should not feel just because he had this book knowledge of, of, of degrees and, and getting his PhD that he had any kind of expertise in getting away with crime. Clearly, he didn't. Um, so if he had committed a crime previous to this and was as sloppy as he did 
was here, I would have thought he would have been caught before now. You know, Bobby, I said earlier on that there was a possibility that he had his cell phone on him. And he did, but he had the smarts to turn it off when he went out. But then he turned it on later. So, Which actually, like, to exactly, me, works against him. It's like you have this... He, it, it's pinging, pinging, and then all of a sudden, right around the time of the murder, it's dark, and then it starts pinging again after. So I li- like a, a, a creative prosecutor could make hay of that. I like it's like the fact that it's there's this darkened period where it goes dark, or right around the time of the murders. It to me, it, it plays right into a prosecutor's hands. Absolutely, and you know the the other thing is is that all of the investigative steps that we had predicted they should be doing. Uh, and, you know, many people, you know, there's people in the chat now uh, announcing, oh, this was an easy investigation. No, it was not. No, no. It was totally, I mean, and, and then you have the same people saying, oh, why did it take so long? It was so, it was, people don't understand that the tests that we do in law enforcement, they take time to come back. You know, toxicology Dude, takes Very manpower from- intensive too. I mean, to, 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 to follow all of these leads. I remember the thousands of leads they were getting. Every one has to be followed out. This was very a very manpower-intensive investigation. They had dozens, if not hundreds, of people working on this thing almost around the clock. Absolutely. And for them, people to say now, oh, this was an easy case. Mike? Yeah, the, uh, the public doesn't understand the timetable. We've commented on this, that this was a rather quick investigation, considering the complexity of the investigation with... Uh, you know, poor victimology studies you got to do. You've got a, you've got, uh, a huge crime scene. The entire house is a crime scene. Um, six weeks is rather quick. And, and I have to agree. Um, some, some commentators are like, well, he must have killed before. But you and I know that there are times that people who may have never have done anything more uh, criminal than jaywalking suddenly decide for whatever reason they're going to commit an armed robbery uh, a homicide, and they graduate right from the very to the very top of the class. And the idea of a philosophy, a PhD in criminology, that's not crook crime school. Crime school is the street. That's where people pick up crime school. That's where it is. And he uh, he should get his money back. On that <laughs> well, category. not just not just the street, but prison is a school yes. of crime, also. Uh, that's that's right. the university. Yeah. Yeah. The street is high the school, P- and the prison is university. That's, that's right. where all the PhDs of crime all hang out together, and they share their information. Right. I wanted to say also, and the, again, I like to beat up the media every once in a while because they deserve it, and they all think erroneously that motive is oh. if you don't prove motive, you don't got a case, Bobby. Just, I just drove me crazy in the clip you just played where, I don't know if it was Don Lemon, the guy on there says, um, yeah, and the most important thing is motive. And I actually saw, uh, it embarrassed me because it was a former FBI agent on uh, News Nation the other day saying, oh, yeah, the, the prosecutors definitely need motive. You know, and I'm like, look, motive for me, especially in the homicides I worked, and I worked with Brooklyn South Homicide a lot, and, and the, the motive was always the least important to us because – most statutes, most murder statutes don't require you to prove why the person did it, just that they did it. And and so motive, it's what everybody always wants to know, but it's not required by most homicide statutes. Murder statutes, you just have to prove the person did it. So we will find out probably motive. And the prosecutors love motive because it tells the story to the jury and you have to tell a story to the jury and get them to understand why things happen. But but everybody is always dying to know why. And I always say this, first of all, number one, it's not it's not required by statute, most murder statutes. And second of all, the, it will it will once we find out if we find out why it will provide no comfort to the families or the victims. It, it, it just doesn't. There is no rational reason why someone would butcher four young, innocent people. And so when you find out the why, you're going to be going, oh, my God, that's such a stupid reason. Of course it's stupid. It's irrational because you have an irrational act and you're trying to apply a rational thought to it. It's not going to satisfy anyone when we find out why this mutt murdered four innocent people. It's just not going to be a satisfactory answer to anybody. No, absolutely not. And uh, I'm glad you used some NYPD words like mutt, mope. Uh, I was raised in the NYPD. I, I, I used to love it when I first came on a job in 1985 in Manhattan Central Booking on the floor where the perp had to get his picture taken with two feet and it said mope. And that was where the, 
<laughs> that was where the mope was to put his feet to have his picture taken. I made the I made the mistake the other day in, in a new show when they were asking about car stops and that I actually used to employ you know NYPD uniforms to 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 make car stops for me in, when I was working the mafia out in Queens and I'd say I get, I'd have an RMP pull up or you know and I realized that people don't know what an RMP is. And then I used the word radio car, and then I realized they didn't know what that meant. So I mean, I mean a marked police car, a unit, a marked unit, whatever right. you want to call. It. But but for me, the for my instinct is to say RMP, or after that, a radio car. And 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 I didn't realize like the general population may not understand what that is. Well, Bobby, we deserve our own language, <laughs> and if they don't understand it, that's too damn bad. Mike, Mike, yeah, the I got to agree with Bobby on the uh, motive angle. It's the motive angle is going to be so trite, trivial. And it's not going to provide any sort of real uh, common sense explanation at all. And uh, we would like to know that because we're curious, but that's like the last thing you need to know. And it's, uh, it's really only for the jury uh, to help explain, put everything into context. But other than that, it's, it's not valuable at all. Absolutely. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, we give you it from a police perspective. We don't give you the sensationalism. We give you the true hard facts. And when we can, we try to educate you as to what the real deal is. And as you can see tonight, we bring on top guests like our retired FBI agent, Bobby Chacon, Professor Mike Geary. Uh, if you want to subscribe to the show, go on our YouTube Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to uh, subscribe to us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel with five different levels. And uh, because of you guys, this channel is growing because I think you know we're the real deal. <laughs> the real deal. Anyway, there's so many other aspects of this case, Bobby. And as, as I said, one of the reasons when I saw you on some of the, the shows uh, – the behavioral analysis, I think, is uh, really fascinating. However, it is not an exact science, and we all know that. We've seen cases, I always like to use the Beltway Sniper. The guys were so far off from predicting who that was. But there's some good stuff, and I'm sure you took that course, maybe you taught that course, and you want to just maybe extrapolate a little bit on who this guy is in your opinion sure sure and then and look i have all the respect in the world for the for the the profilers the fbi profiles the nypd profiles those guys are great there, there's a there's a there's a room for them but not in a case like this this case did not have a lot of profiling in it because profilers like multiple crimes multiple victims because they build a profile a profile is built and the more crimes you have the more crime scenes the more victims you build that profile you really can't do it with one single case um, I mean, there are you can profile from these victims in this crime a little bit. Um, and, and you take something like you said, the Beltway snipers. We've never seen a serial killing team. Right. So that's the first time. So they also re rely on past history. They go to prisons. They they interview serial killers. So they're building kind of a historical thing. Well, then when they come across something that's never happened before, it's off the radar to them. So you have to be careful with that. And look. I, after I retired, I, I work in Hollywood now as a, as a writer, and I've worked on the Criminal Minds, the show Criminal Minds, for four years. And, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm very um, sensitive to profiling and what they bring to the table and stuff. Um, but but it's, it's really not, profiling was really not part of this case. You, 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 again, it's one of those things we all want to know. We all want to know why, how, who this person is, why, what kind of person would do something like this, you know? And so, but, but, but in reality, it's going to be whoever the physical evidence leads us to. Um, we're not worried about the kind of person who would do this because we really don't know. And you look at this particular person. I mean, I would have never thought it was a PhD student that was studying criminology that did this. I would have thought, you know, your natural thoughts are form a boyfriend, a spurned, uh, you know, interest guy who was trying to hit on her. You know, you think of the natural, you know, things um, and you don't think of somebody totally unassociated with these people. And I, when I say totally, I mean like, he wasn't part of their, you know, social circle and circle, like yeah. that. Yeah. And so, so yeah, the profiling, I mean, you know, look, just like polygraphs, profiling is not admissible in court. We can't bring that in. Right. I, 27 years, I work cases. I never used a profiler in my cases. So, I mean, profiling has a place. It's very limited. It's very niche. Although everybody thinks everything's a profile and everybody wants to talk to a profiler. It, it's a very niche 
field and has a very limited application. Um, in this particular case, you, they had a crime scene. The, the forensics at the crime scene was going to point them in the direction of a suspect. You have victims and the victims' lives may point you in the direction of a suspect. Um, you're not going to sit there and say, what kind of person would do this? Because, I mean, you know, everybody here, Professor Mike, and, I mean, killers come from every walk of life. They come from every every social strata, every economic strata. Uh, you know, you can't really say, you know, oh, I'm going to look at this crime and I'm going to tell you what kind of person did this, particularly a horrific crime like this. You just, it just does it has a very limited application. But Mike, uh, excuse me, uh, Bobby, certain things you could say right away. There was, there was almost a 99% chance this was a guy. You know what I mean? People, when people said, oh, this oh, absolutely. I mean, I, and I said that early on, the physicality of it was probably because, you know, not to be a misogynist, but to be uh, the physicality of this was probably going to be male. The fact that three of them were females probably made it a male. I said early on, like what the profilers do tell us is like, for example, if one of the females had, you know, a, a significant amount of facial injuries, like the stabbings in the face, that could indicate a female perpetrator. Because when a woman kills another woman, particularly if it's a love interest type of thing, they often will make wounds to the face. But we didn't have that. We, or at least the, they didn't release that. So, so that would be one minor kind of a behavioral thing that might indicate who this person was. Other than that, you know, other than it being a male, you know, okay, maybe you, you slice the population in half. Um, but certainly uh, this looked like a male. But beyond that, education level, economic level, I mean, you can't really tell much by the crime. Right. So all of the, um, the the behavioral analysis, even though the public loves that because it's uh, it's TV friendly, it's not going to help the investigators capture this guy, Mike. Yeah. The uh, I was I've been doing some research on you know the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath and all kinds of different you know inter interchanges between the two. And they would always give you, the, there's 10 characteristics that make up the sociopath. The eight characteristics make up a, a psychopath. Nobody is going to ring every single bell. When you, if you do a deep analysis and they, people spend 20 years uh, talking to Koberg, he's not going to fit perfectly 100% into a particular mold because people are all different. And, and that's just the way it goes. So that's one of the limits of profiling. It's, it has its uses. It's fantastic. But uh, in this case, like other cases, you'll be surprised as we were, like with the Belt Parkway uh, uh, sniper case, uh, this case, there's going to be a lot of surprises. And for the armchair person that just wants to pigeonhole somebody into a, a particular spot and say, that explains it. No, not at all. Chris Molly, thank you for the $10 super chat. All you guys, I mean, we don't mean to disparage any part of law enforcement, but we just know from working cases and from what it takes to get evidence and to lock people up. And as Bobby said, in 27 years, he never used the profiler. Uh, same thing with me. And I had almost 27 years. We never used the profile. And absolutely what we would never, ever use is a, uh, a uh, medium. When people start calling to use mediums, that's when you better start giving up. Because that is, that is, I don't know any police department, any law enforcement in this world that would use a medium. Yeah, I think that, you know, you know, there's a danger, you know, as a legal person too, as a, as a lawyer, there's, there's a danger to using a profile because if you use a profile and then, you know, like, like, like Mike said, if the person doesn't fit every single element of the profile, guess what? A defense attorney is going to get up there and say, well, your profiler said this. Did you look for somebody with, you know, if the defendant say he has numbers one through six, but he doesn't have seven through 10, the defense attorney is going to say, did you find anybody with seven through 10? Did you look for anybody with seven through 10? And he's going to try to build a doubt in one juror's mind, which is all they need, one doubt in one juror's mind. And if the defendant doesn't fit the profile exactly, which they never do, you know, then he can use that profile, the defense, to say, hey, you know, your own profiler said the defendant would have these characteristics and, and my client doesn't. So there is a downside sometimes to, to getting a profile. But like I said, profiles, the more information you can give a profile, the more accurate they can become. That's why they're good in serial killer cases, because they have this whole trail of crime scenes, this whole trail of victims. And you can start seeing patterns. That's what the profilers like to see is patterns. 
When you get like a one one incident crime scene, you can tell a little bit and the profilers are okay to come in and tell you a little bit, but it's not really a really big tool in a case like this. You know, Bobby when, and Mike, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the, to me, what is pretty much smoking gun evidence in that crime scene. And one is the knife sheath that had DNA on the button that was used to open the sheath. And that was that K-bar knife. It, it had the Marine Corps insignia on, on the sheath. That is such, such a powerful evidence. The other thing was the pair of shoes, excuse me, not the shoes, the imprint left in blood that was recovered using uh, a, a chemical. It was recovered. So there's two types of things that we're looking at with the shoe print, and that's something called individual characteristics and class characteristics. Now, class characteristics, I'm going to put my professor hat on just for a second, is that all of Vans-type shoes have the same bottom. And so you can actually go to the manufacturer once they identify it, that, that it's a Van-type shoe, and they have whole databases of the bottoms of their shoes. Now, the individual characters are how the person wears their shoe, what pits and fissures are on the bottom of their shoe. Oh, wow, those are big academic words. I don't know where I remembered them from. Pits and fissures on the bottom of the shoe. And if you recover that shoe, and make, it's such powerful evidence because it can be an exact match, the imprint that you lifted off the floor. Yeah, it almost becomes like a fingerprint, right? I mean, it's like, look, we all have different gates. We all have different the ways the way we walk. We're all different sizes. You know, some people left foot dominant, right foot dominant. And if you, the longer you wear that shoe, the more unique it will be to your gait and to the way you walk, how it wears on the bottom will be very, very individual to you. And, and you could probably take all your different shoes or tennis shoes or sneakers, and they'll probably match each other because of the way you walk, as long as you walk in them enough. Absolutely. And it's such a powerful thing for a juror to see that imprint, and especially in blood. Mike, any comments? Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the one of the more powerful things, as you mentioned with the shoe, is that when you get the imprint and you lift that print up and you have you take a picture of it and you identify it with with a uh, like an FBI agent or a state police officer who has a, or a manufacturer who's a specialist in this sort of thing, and you show that to the jury, and if possible, if you can get the figure out the actual size of the shoe, and if it was say a ten and a half, and say Kohlberg has a ten and a half. Uh, shoe that he has. Um, not only can you connect him to, he does have the van shoes, but he also wears the exact same size. If you could do something like that, that makes it as, as, as Bobby said, that's like a fingerprint. Absolutely. Okay. That's classic. And you know, some of the other things, and, and I know there's, as you said, Bobby, this probable cause affidavit is probably releasing about one thousandth of the evidence that they have. I believe they have tons more DNA evidence in that house to include his blood. And I think that if that blood is in the crime scene, he's dead. He's, he's de I think he's dead now, but he's dead to rights if that blood is in the crime scene. The other part of this to, to me that is fascinating, and on I don't know if you know uh, the podcast, The Duty Ron. He's also an NYPD detective that's retired. But he had a woman on the other night named Colleen Fitzpatrick who is a genetic genealogy expert. She's a PhD. She was brilliant. And when I heard about the uh, the, the Y chromosome uh, test that they do, it's almost going to make CODIS obsolete yeah. in the next few years because they can build a whole genetic triangle just from a Y chromosome. And I was like, oh, my God, this has been around only since 1986. And it's already going into another platitude, another planet, another universe. It's the science is advancing so fast. And if you talk to Barbara Butcher, who was the chief of staff of the New York City Medical Examiner's Office for 27 years, she said because of 9-11, DNA technology advanced three generations. So on cases like this, when you see the science, you're like, this is unbelievable, just unbelievable. And we can actually get, we can get DNA now off of objects and from places that 
five years ago we would give up on. We wouldn't even, we would look at it and say, you can't get DNA off of that. But now like the MVAC system that is complete, just in the last five or six years, the MVAC is this super vacuum that puts liquid in, that absorbs it and then it extracts the liquid and then they see what the liquid collected. I mean, there are new ways all the time of extracting DNA from things we previously thought we could never get DNA of, sim simply like fingerprints. I ran the FBI underwater forensic program for 19 years. So I had I was able to get fingerprints off of guns that had been submerged in the water for months. And we still got a fingerprint off them because the oil, depending on the temperature of the water, the salination of the water, things like that. Um, but we at Quantico, we had big trenches and we would put objects in underwater for different periods of time and different temperatures and stuff. And, and you'd be surprised at the advancements. And that's why no matter what PhD you have, you're not going to outsmart these machines. No matter how good you clean that car, you're not going to be able to get, you know, into the fibers that where that where some of this stuff lives. And now we have the technology that we can go in there and get that stuff. Absolutely. Law, thank you so much, LAW, for the $9.99 Super Chat. Duty Ron, thank you so much for the $20 Super Chat. Uh, Duty Ron says, uh, great guest, Bill. Mike and Bobby, top notch. Got to get that Long Island guy on with another set of NYPD guys. Uh, you know, it's Bobby, it really is so great to, to get you on the show, as well as Mike Geary, who I actually used to teach at the same college as him a few years ago. But then I, I tried to, like you, I tried to become an actor and a stand-up comic and all this other stuff. But uh, when I see the credentials you have, uh, diving and all this other stuff, writing for uh, – that's fantastic. I mean, it's always yeah, but great. you know what? I always go home, too. I was working Jamaican gangs in the 6-7, the 7-7. Seven, seven. I would work. I would walk into the squad area there. They guys all knew me. I mean, that's really – that's my dream. I, if I could go back to any period of time in my life, it'd be the late 80s, early 90s, walking into the 6-7 squad and, and seeing my buddy Jack Winane or – you know, seven, seven squad and going up and see Mike Paul, you know, these guys and, and, or going down and see you know, Bobby, Bobby Powell and Willie Bishop down in Brooklyn South homicide. I mean, those were the days, man, we were running and gunning, you know, I was working Jamaicans in, in 1990. I mean, you know how many homicides we had in New York city in 1990. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, it was just a, it was just a busy time. I'm, I'm writing about some of that stuff now, but it was, if I could go back to any time in my life, it would be, it would be that late eighties, early nineties period, New York city and Brooklyn and, and uh, and it was just a it was just a special time. And those guys, I all keep in touch with them all retired now. But, you know, just special group of guys and special times. You know, Bobby, what I, I say sort of the same thing, but my favorite was anti-crime and oh, street yeah. crime. Yeah. You know, anti-crime to me was the greatest detail on the NYPD. Yeah. yeah. A few folks that don't know what that is, it's we used to have every precinct had a plainclothes unit and you would go out and try to make robbery and gun college GLAs stuff like that, and they disbanded it recently, all the bullshit politics. But anti-crime was probably the most successful unit on the NYPD and, of course, the street crime unit that took more guns off the streets of New York City. And now, because of politics, they've uh, they've neutered the NYPD and taken these units in. When Bobby starts talking with that glee in his eye and, uh, you know, uh, and it's, 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 the real, it's the truth. It's, you miss you know, it. You miss it. I miss it. Yeah, absolutely. But there is a time. I remember I had a, a, a lieutenant from street crime come on my show one time and he said, I was wrestling with this 16 year old and he had a gun and he was stronger than me. And he goes, that's when I decided it was time to retire because that's that, it's that a young man's happened. game. It's a young yeah, man's that, game. Right. Sure exactly. He said yeah. that never happened to me. And when that happened, he said, I knew that it was time to go, but I shouldn't be doing this anymore. And yeah. he, he retired shortly after that. Yeah, it's definitely a young man's game. Street crime is a is a young man's game. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mike, I know uh, you want to tell some four four stories. <laughs> no, 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 no. But four, the, four. Uh, that, that, that isn't that condemned? Wasn't that building? Is that the one that was condemned? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's on the Deegan. It's on yeah, the yeah. No, the yeah. uh, late eighties, early nineties, we had about two thousand homicides a year in New York City. Mm -hmm. It was just incredible the amount of work that got done. By the guy, by the plainclothes guys, the guys in uniform, the men and women in uniform and plainclothes, and detectives. I knew I knew detectives in the fort in the four six station house. They had like six or seven homicides they're working on at the same time. <laughs> it was it was incredible, yeah. and you know, hats off to uh, Moscow for calling in the people with better, with more uh, experience right away, and not leaving it up to their own uh, detective unit. Absolutely. You know, Mike, I want, I wanted to, uh, and Bobby, I wanted to talk about 
you know, we, we spoke about the inexperience of the, the Moscow police. And I don't want to belabor that, but also very inexperienced. And the next step is the prosecutor. And he may look like he's 90, but the guy, he, he hasn't prosecuted a murder in, in seven years. And it, I don't know, in his career, that's a huge concern. So he also is going to have to get help, either from the state uh, prosecutor's office, right? Yeah, the state uh, attorney general usually, hopefully, will step in. The state attorney general can offer him. And look, the, the county prosecutor can remain in charge, but they can give him a second seat, uh, a, an assistant prosecutor on that case that has a lot of death penalty case experience and stuff. And I, I hope they do that. I anticipate they will. The, the attorney general of the state of Idaho could step in and kind of advise that county prosecutor on who they should bring bring aboard the prosecution. Because look, these are always teams. There'll be there'll be half a dozen prosecutors on this case. You know, there'll be like I think in OJ we saw the three of them all the time, right? So I think that you'll you'll have a whole prosecutive team, and certainly they will populate that team with people that have done major homicides and certainly death penalty cases. Because death penalty cases, if they go seek the death penalty, the death penalty cases have a whole different line of hearings and. You know, there was there was a lot of review put on death penalty cases. So I think that they probably will have, um, you know, a death, what we call a death prosecutor uh, on, on that team, certainly at a minimum. Absolutely. I think, you know, yeah, you say a t almost a team of prosecutors, a team of just investigators assigned just to the DA to uh, help present that evidence. Let me play a little bit of this, guys. If it'll play. And I do want to bring in Bobby Chacon, retired FBI agent, for some perspective on this investigation. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Do you feel this investigation really does hinge or, or is focusing in on Kaylee Gonsalves, given her excessive injuries, suggesting perhaps she was the killer's main target? Well, if that is the case, I think that's one avenue that's being explored. I think all avenues are being explored. Um, I think there's a lot of work being done in this case. There's a tremendous amount of leads to, to, to that are coming in to be covered. So, yes, I think that's one. I, I wouldn't say that's the only one. Um, I don't know um, because I'm not privy to the inside of the investigation and none of us are and none of us should be. Um, the only information that should be coming out should be information that's relevant to the public safety or to strategically benefit the investigation. Other than that, I don't mind at all if the police are not giving daily updates or weekly updates. I mean, I'm not as concerned with that. I, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of speculation about it. This is only a month. People are talking like a month is a long time for an investigation. It is not. We just had a case in the Delphi murders in in, in uh, Indiana that took five years, and they took, just got the guy in custody. You know, uh, these investigations take time. This was a brutal crime scene. A lot of forensic and physical evidence uh, that was gathered to be gone through in a proper way, um, oftentimes in a laboratory setting. And so these things take time, and the, the public needs a measure of, of patience with this investigation, um, I'm sure the police, if they had anything related to the, the actual public safety, if there were people in danger, they would put that out. But barring that, um, I, I don't see any issue along this investigation. I, I know many in the public are concerned we are at the one-month one mark about this case turning cold. What, when would you be concerned then that this will turn into a cold case? What, what does that timeline look like for you? I mean, it all depends on, on the, the tips coming in, right? So they've got 3,000 tips that are coming in, and they're coming in more all the time. As long as this case is getting generating this kind of publicity, people are going to be calling in. And, and every time the police give an update, that usually generates more tips coming in. The, when it goes cold is when no tips and the phones stop ringing and people stop talking about it. That's when it goes cold. But we're, we're a long, long way from that. They, they've got thousands of tips, to, you know, both the, the call, the call, people are calling in, people are using uh, social media, people are emailing those tips in. So I, I think that we're a long way from this case even being close to being cold. Okay, I appreciate that. We had another former FBI agent, Tracy Walder, on the show yesterday, and she says that she killer has likely reacclimated back into the Moscow community, and she also feels the suspect is likely a male. What is your take on that? I'm, I'm not sure she bases the the first assumption uh, that he's reacclimated. We don't. I just don't know. There's no way to know that um, this person could be overseas. He could be. He could be in another state. There's just no way to know what the person is and what they've done. Um, I do feel it's a male. I mean, the physicality um, that this this crime was carried out does indicate we could be wrong. Um, uh, it's been seen before, but most likely due to the physicality that was required to carry this out, 
you know, my guess is that it is a male um, just because the physical capabilities of time and, and stabbing people that many times to cause their death um, requires a, a heightened level of physicality, and, and that would lead me to be a male. Again, that's an assumption. Based on what I know, the limited stuff that I know of the physical evidence at the crime scene. Um, but I would agree with, with her assumption that it's a male. I'm not sure. I applaud you for, you know, because, you know, I made, uh, I was, I turned amateur profiler during this case too. And I predicted that this guy was dissed by one of these girls big time. And he was a townie. You know what a townie, right? Yeah. Someone that was from the town. And uh, but I'm wrong, you know, and I freely admit I'm wrong. But like you said, how did she make the prediction that he's assimilated back into society? He's taken his spot back in the farm. You know, how do you know that? You don't, yeah, you don't know I get that. A little, I get a little flack sometimes because I, I don't really hold my tongue often. And, and I, I just say what I feel. And I, I, I try not to be Sherlock Holmes. I think some people come on these shows and they feel they have to have every answer. And they have to have an answer for something. And it's not, it is okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I'm not sure. Um, it's okay to say, well, it could be, but it could be something else. But I think certain of these people in my own profession feel the need to have to have every answer definitively all the time. And it's just not the way it works. No, absolutely not. And, you know, you, as you said, that's why I, when I watched you earlier on, I respected what you said because, you know, especially the academics, they speak in absolutes. That woman the other night that wrote the book on BTK or something, and she was, someone said, oh, could that guy be evil? And she was like, oh, evil connotates religion. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Where did you, oh, evil is when you're rolling around on the ground with a guy with a gun and he's trying to kill you. That's evil. And he not would kill you and not even lose an ounce of sleep over that night over it. That, that's evil, right? He, right. He, he, would, he could put a bullet in your head and not think twice about it. That's evil. Um, right. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of evil in the world. It doesn't have anything to do with religion. She was just against religion, so she wanted to put that little uh, right. tidbit in there. And uh, Mike, I mean, I got a little flack. Sorry, Mike, I, I got a little flack about that appearance too, um, because that was right after I think the father had hired a private investigator, and there was some of the private investigator that I had appeared with who was like was telling telling witnesses to call him, and he would present it to the police. And I was, you know, I had to step in and I say, look, the police don't. I, I sometimes sound a little callous. The police. The, the, they des the family deserves something, but they don't deserve to be partners in the investigation. Um, and there's reasons sometimes you keep stuff from a family. Number one, leaks. Number two, a family member could be a suspect, not in this case, but in, in general. And so, like I said, there's in my investigations, I only favored releasing information under two circumstances. One, where it did directly relate to keeping people safe in the public. And number two, where it was a strategic move on the part of the investigation to maybe what we used to call tickle the wire when I worked the mafia. You know, you release something, maybe your suspect will do something. And, and so a strategic benefit to the investigation. Other than those two examples, I wasn't in favor of letting anything go. I don't care about the Internet sleuths wanting information. I don't care about these 24-hour news stations wanting information, even though I'm on there a lot. Um, <laughs> it, it, those two situations were the only ones that I can see that, that that information should be released from, especially, look, this is an important murder investigation. The slightest slip up or mistake could cost you a conviction and 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 God forbid. You know, Bobby, can I add uh, that to my Canon glossary, a uh, tickling the wire? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I love that one. That's a great yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. It's when um, you're up on a wiretap and you release certain public information, knowing the guys are gonna pick up the phone and call. And so you tell the guys in the wire room who are listening, Hey, get ready because you know we're going to put something on the five o'clock news, and then these guys are going to start calling each other about it. So that's yeah. that's great. Yeah. Tammy at TV, thank you for the ten dollars super chat. Bill, hope BK is the guy versus angry about this case. I'm now concerned about loopholes. Like I dropped my sheath at the party. Yes, I was in the area seeing a friend. Hope no acquaintance to survive. You know, dropping the sheath. I don't think that is really. It's right near the crime scene. So far, it's we in the know bed that. With her. Yeah, there's, there's, right. It, it was at the bed, right? Uh, right. No, it's, it's probably touch DNA. We don't. They didn't say it was blood. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Also, um, Tamla, I believe there's going to be a lot more DNA in that crime scene than just that was on that uh, knife sheath. My, Mike Geary, I'm sorry. It seems like we're uh, 
not giving you. Oh, no, that's fine. That's good. I think we all became amateur uh, sleuths, uh, you know, for quarter, quarter, Monday morning quarterbacking a lot. We all did that. But I think some of the predictions we made were actually very accurate from the uh, gender of the of the suspect, you know, that sort of thing. But because we were basing it not on statistics, but on our own experience and statistics. And so I think that's that's where you should we should go and not not any further. It's the end of the dock. You don't take another step beyond that. Uh, the 24 hour, seven day a week news cycle, unfortunately, does kind of create this sort of demand for hyperbole. And it's inappropriate sometimes. And I do feel sorry for the Gonzalez family and all for all the families, but uh, in particular for her family, because it, it, it came out it came out that one, one of the uh, uh, the coroners, someone from the coroner's office leaked some sort of information about the injuries to uh, Ms. Gonzalez, which may have been the result, as we hypothesize, not not that she was uh, the target uh, of this madman but that she might have been awake and actually fought back where maybe some of the other people were in a more unconscious state. Um, and that hurt the Gonzalez family tremendously. And uh, your heart- well, I think, Mike, I think actually that coroner too, he relayed that information to her 17 year old sister. Yes. That's what I had heard, which is, which is a horrific thing. If over that's the telephone. True. Yeah, <laughs> over the telephone to the 17 year old sister. I mean, I don't know what, that person was thinking, right. um, they must have never been in a case where you're dealing with family members of a murdered a sister, a sibling, or, or child, because that's not the way you handle it. No, not at all. Not Absolutely. At all. Uh, Chris May asked this question. Chris, thanks for the $10 super chat. Why did he return to the scene? And do you think DM saw him then? Do you believe that's more they're keeping for trial? I think maybe he thought about going back for the sheath. Bobby, you want to answer that? I mean, it could be. I mean, it could. I, I think he. I think she saw him when he was initially leaving the house, and I think that. I don't know why he's pinged again. You know, he might have doubled back. He might have thought about going back in, but then got scared. I mean, this required a lot of adrenaline. I think he crashed. I think he was physically exhausted when he walked by her, and he could not even probably conjure up the energy to have another attack. But I. I. I mean, I think probably he panicked. At some point when he realized, because that K-bar knife is a big knife. You can't just keep that in your pocket, right? That's why it has a sheath on it. Um, and, and if you put it in your pocket, you could stab yourself in the leg. So I think at some point when he got back in his car, he realized when he started to get his, his faculties back and think a little clearly, he realized he, he had dropped the sheath. That could be a reason why he doubled back. It looks like he doubled back but didn't go back in the house. I don't know that he went back in the house yeah. a second time. I well, think did, she did saw he, him as he was Did leaving. he go back to the scene as a thrill thing. It could be, or, you know, a lot of these guys want to see what the response is. Like, I, I mean, look, he might've been, he, I think he went back at like nine o'clock or, or yes. something, you know, like hours later. I mean, he's probably thinking, you know, why aren't the cops there yet? You know, that's what I would have been thinking. Like if he knew, and apparently he saw that DM, he saw, I think he saw her anyway. Um, I, I, I think he's probably thinking there should be ambulances. There should be police at that house already. And he Absolutely. might have gone back by to see that, you know, like sometimes these guys put themselves outside the police line in the crowd to kind of look what's going on. And, you know, I, I think he might have come back expecting to see activity, certainly police activity at the house. Absolutely. Weed killer 420. Thank you for the five dollar super chat. Does Moscow PD still have an opportunity to interrogate Koberger? No, absolutely not. I'm sure he probably lawyered up immediately and there was no uh, interview of him whatsoever. Uh, Bobby, do you have uh, any inside info on that? Well, I, all I know is he he's been appointed a public defender, which is standard right away, and he's he's had that that appearance with the public defender. Now they have to, uh, from what I understand, I've heard I've read reporting that his family can't afford an attorney. Um, uh, the 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 same thing we spoke about the prosecutor earlier. Even the public defender in this case will have a budget to hire an experienced death defense attorney on death penalty cases, they will get him, you know, they won't just have a brand new public defender who doesn't have a lot of experience. They will be able to fund a very experienced defense attorney. That's well-versed in death penalty cases. Absolutely. We, well, we were calling them hired guns, but mm -hmm. he probably will get legal aid. Although there's usually strict financial guidelines and uh, on whether you get legal aid or not. 
And there's also the there's also a possibility that some of these one of these high paid lawyers comes in and does it for a lot less than his normal fee, just because everybody realizes the amount of publicity that this case is going to have. Whoever represent him is going to have that 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 you know publicity that money can't buy kind of thing. Um, and uh, you know a lot of those defense counsels, you know they 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 look for that. I saw Garagos on as a talking head, so he's he always comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, I've been on like cases. twice with him in the last week. Yeah, uh, I don't know why, but but they have. Is he, is he they a have California him. guy? I know he he's is. A, yeah, 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 he, he is. is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's so many of these guys. He represents I just Scott wanted Peterson. To, I wanted to mention quickly also. You mentioned the private investigator. I know from my own experience, we would never talk to a private investigator on any homicide case or give them any information whatsoever. We didn't care if they were retired NYPD, FBI. They were not privy to any information whatsoever. So in essence, it's a waste for the family. And it also compromises the investigation. If this guy's telling people to call him and not the police, well, are you kidding me? You know? Yeah, he put it right on his Instagram page. I follow him because I'm on, on I appear with him a lot on different shows on Court TV. And, and he sure enough, I see this thing. And I first my comment to him on his on his Instagram page is hey. These are potential witnesses in a pending murder investigation. They should be talking directly to the police. You shouldn't be soliciting them to come to you. And, and I, I, as far as I know, he wasn't even working for the family. He just, again, he probably wanted to inter inject himself into a high-profile case because private investigators, the same as defense attorneys, they rely on publicity to get clients. And a case like this is going to draw in a lot of people that want to latch onto it so they can you know, get a name for themselves. Absolutely. Uh, let me just do this quickly. Uh, folks, if you're looking for a good defense attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, Joe Murray's your man. He's a retired NYPD police officer, and he's a fantastic defense attorney as well as a big supporter of police off the cuff. His cell phone is 718-514-3855. You can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. His website is jmurray-law.com. Bobby, it's been uh, it's been fascinating, and uh, you know, as I said, I can spot a street cop from miles away, and I don't say that about most FBI agents, but I can tell just listening to you on the on the uh, you know, as I'll use the term "talking head" as a talking head, I know that you know your shit, and I was impressed, and I want to just thank you thank so you. much for coming on the show tonight. It was really. Uh, very thanks much appreciate No, thanks for having me anytime. Yeah, look, I, I'm yeah. five years old. My dad was was dragging me into the station house to collect a check because back then there was no direct deposit. He had that's to right, in. that's right. We'd, we'd drive into Queens from Long Island to see my grandma. We'd stop off at the precinct to get his paycheck. And uh, so, you know, in the precinct picnics. And back then we had, um, what was that thing upstate called? Police the camp. The camp. Yes. Yeah, police camp. I, I used to vacation up at police camp. So, you know, the NYPD, you know, I was actually on the list when I was coming out of Hofstra Law School uh, to get to get on the NYPD and the NY, uh, the FBI call first with my dad, you know, who was already retired, uh, talked me into going the FBI. My brother was already in the job. He says, nah, go with the feds. They might treat you a little better, you know, travel a little more kind of thing. And, you know, so it was my dad who actually, um, he's not with us anymore, but he was the, the one who urged me to go into the FBI. And he was there when I graduated the FBI Academy, but the NYPD has always been my home. It sounds like you had a, a fantastic career. Um, Mike Geary, final, uh, final words. I just want to let anybody who's uh, you know watching that we we really kind of take the police and the prosecutor side on many things, but uh, they don't have to worry about Mr. Coburg. He's going to be well represented. He's definitely going to have an attorney who's experienced in death penalty, a defense attorney who's experienced in death penalty cases. To do less for him would not be uh, would not be uh, fairness and due process and justice for him. So he will be well represented, and it's going to be a tough case. I always forget to say that he's innocent to proven guilty, but uh, I'll, I'll say it now. Bobby, final words. Yeah, I think you're, I think my try. I think this is, and this is still, you know, basically a circumstantial case. Um, I feel for DM. I don't, I, 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 I will uh, strap onto your guys' earlier comments. She should not be vilified. You don't know what person's going through unless you've been in her shoes. And none of us have been in her shoes. Um, she's gone through a life altering event now. Um, whatever happens, this will change the rest of her life uh, and not in the better. Um, and so people should kind of give her, you know, room and, and, and not make assumptions and not vilify her um, and, and 
just try to be human and try to understand that people are in different situations and don't make assumptions. And, 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 you know, that's, that's all I hope for her that she has a lot of my thoughts in the last day or two since the, the affidavit came out, um, you know, and, and I hope the best for her. Well, thank you, Bobby. You know, you folks can see that, uh, what good people cops are. I really mean that, uh, Certain people will just, you know, eat people up for no reason. And I think we always give uh, people the benefit of the doubt. And uh, you could see that, uh, at least in this panel here. And uh, as from Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant, Mike Geary, and uh, FBI, retired FBI agent Bobby Chacon, thank you guys so much for listening. Have a great night and be safe. Take thank care. You. One episode, just